afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of We're Gonna Need a Bigger Show. I am joined, as always, by Matt, General Audience Miles. You were gonna say I, I was gonna say, it's, it's okay, you give a thunder, you know, Sorry, it's okay. It, take it right away from you. Uh, <laughs> and we're still kind of uh, dealing with our, our Fantasia Fest coverage, we've been, you know, doing interviews, um, but... One of my favorite authors of the last few years actually had a presentation at Fantasia Fest that we didn't get to attend, um, but he has a new book coming out called Paperbacks from Hell. You may know him from his work uh, with Horror Store and My Best Friend's Exorcism. We have Grady Hendricks joining us today. Grady, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm psyched awesome. to be here awesome. spiritually <laughs> the way. You said that you're at a convention right now? Yeah, I'm at Necronomicon up in uh, Providence. I actually had, um, I was doing the Paperbacks from Hell uh, performance, and they put me in at like a 9 a.m. slot, which I was really bummed out about. <laughs> um, and then we wound out having this like standing room only crowd that seemed to really enjoy it, which I thought was almost impossible that early in the morning. <laughs> but there you go. I'm actually, the power of paperbacks. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised by that at all, um, actually. But we'll get into paperbacks from hell here in a little bit. But to kind of kick off, I wanted to talk about just kind of your early life and what uh, what influence did pop culture and genre stuff have on you growing up? I mean, were you absorbing a lot of a lot of those things, you know, in in your childhood? Yeah, I mean, you know. It's hard to say. I mean, I grew up, so I grew up in South Carolina and um, in Charleston. And the, the two things that sort of really shaped me early on is, one is that um, my family lived in London for about a year. Uh, my dad was working over there. And we rented this house where there was a huge library. And my family were all big readers. And um, there was a book called... I can't remember the title. It was like a book of folklore, uh, you know, just sort of like spooky stories. Sure. And it was way up on the highest shelf <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. And like in this library. And I would like, it was black and it had gold writing on it. And it, I just, I knew it was something I wanted to see. <laughs> and so I would like monkey up these shelves and read this thing whenever I could. And um, it was just full of like the most lurid sort of descriptions of like, witch hunting and torture and, and mayhem. It was great. And I was like six years old and loved it. Um, and then the other thing was um, because growing up in South Carolina was a Navy base near us and my dad was obsessed that we were all going to die in a nuclear war at any minute. And so he would always tell me that like when nuclear war broke out Charleston would be like the first <laughs> Like, it's in the top ten of Soviet Union targets. Wow. So I, like, I don't even think anyone in the Soviet Union knows where Charleston is, but, like, he was obsessed with this idea. And so, like, we would basically, I, I grew up in terror. And so I wound up reading tons and tons of men's adventure fiction. It was all post-apocalyptic. Uh, you know, like, the TSR gaming stuff for uh, Gamma World, the post-apocalyptic yeah. role-playing game. I didn't have anyone to play it with, but I read that stuff obsessively. I was obsessed with, like, Red Dawn, and then that got me into all this, like, sort of ultra-violent, like, um, adventure fiction stuff, like um, a book called Park is Mine, about a Vietnam vet who, like, takes over Central Park with, like, guns and claymore mines oh, and stuff, and they like, <laughs> murders the police, and, like, just all this, like, really super-duper violent, inappropriate men's adventure stuff. So that was sort of where I came from. And then 
um, there was a paperback like swap shop, like a book exchange, uh, sort of that I could get to on my bike. And, um, you know, everything was super cheap, right? It was like a buck. Sure. And so I'd read whatever was there. And of course, it was a lot of Stephen King, uh, you know, and that kind of stuff. So um, that was sort of all my gateway drugs. Absolutely. And that seems to, you know, kind of set up for what's going to come later on. Uh, when did when did writing kind of become a, a thing that you became interested in? Was it around the same time or did it come a little bit later on? No, because what I really wanted to do is I wanted to, like, I wanted to be a movie director. Like, I wanted to be Steven Spielberg. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and what I realized was over the years, because I did a lot of theater and stuff like that, is that if you were working on, like, a film or a play or something, a huge amount of your energy was spent getting people to show up on time and, like, know their lines. And so I realized that, like, the, the, the one artistic endeavor where you only had to rely on yourself was writing. Um, and so I started to do that sort of more and more exclusively um, in, like, university. Sure. Uh, and then, um, and so after that, I was like, uh, I, I got into journalism at a certain point and started uh, writing, uh, you know, for Variety and places like that. And um, in, like, 2008, that sort of all bottomed out. Like, you could actually make a really good living as a freelancer before then. Sure. And then in, like, 08, it's just, like, the freelance journalism world died like a dog in the gutter. <laughs> and um, so I, I made the really stupid decision that, you know, I'd find something even less profitable to go into <laughs> and, and start writing fiction. <laughs> well, to talk a little bit about your journalism career, even even then, you know, in, in a lot of your articles, there's still this heavy meditation on pop culture. Um, one of, obviously, the ones that is a standout is the, the Choose Your Own Adventure uh, interview. Um, what what Was it just these things that from your childhood that you, you know, like a lot of people in, in entertainment journalism, that they just want to revisit this nostalgia? Was that something that just has always appealed to you? Well, kind of. And I also realized two things. One is that, like, I really liked doing stuff where I could, like, go full immersion. You know what I mean? Like, where it really, like, mattered to me. Because the fact is, like, I could make good living as a freelance journalist, but, like, there's not a ton of money. You're not going to get rich doing that. So you may as well write about stuff you care about. It just seems to make it less like work and more like a life. Sure. And um, so, and that was part of it. But another part of it was that I think there's this real feeling that stuff just happens, right? Like, like you know, um, uh, like computer games just happened. Um, that gaming just happened. That Call of Duty just happened. Right. Um, that, you know, that, um, and, and, and in fact, when you start digging into this stuff, you start finding these chains that go back and back and back. And so the Choose Your Own Adventure thing was really interesting because I had started reading sort of some people doing online, doing some heavy thinking about it. And, and you start to realize that these books were sort of the beginning of this struggle in gaming between um, letting people have a sandbox where they could run around and play, like having the player in control and trying to tell a story, right? It was that, it was that tension between a narrative and, and a world and world building. Right. And, and that's something that's like a huge issue in games, right? I mean, my, my, the games I love most are like Grand Theft Auto and all its various in, incarnations because it's just a big sandbox where you, you wreak havoc. And I really, really hate games with a narrative. But 
the narrative thing was so heavy. You had Choose Your Own Adventure, and that led sort of to Infocom, and, you know, the Zork games and all that. There were those text-based adventures. And, you know, and so it's, it's just interesting to trace this back. And it was interesting doing that article because I found out that going back beyond Choose Your Own Adventure, there was actually a really small part of Cambridge, Massachusetts, like basically two or three buildings, um, where a lot of people who did early video game design, early game design, early game books, and all that stuff, we're all working and all that they're sort of like, you know, training wheels. And a lot of that was funded by uh, the government through the, uh, you know, it was funded by RAND, it was funded by Department of Defense and all these other people doing research on games and stuff like that. So it's just interesting to see this stuff and where it goes back. Sure. Um, I did a huge piece from film comment um, about uh, the movie, not the movie uh, parodies in Mad Magazine, sure. because that was how I saw a lot of movies. Like, I saw the, I read the Mad Magazine parody of 2001 <laughs> and, like, The Godfather way before I saw those movies. It was really influenced how I saw those movies, you know? So it was like, it was just a really interesting thing to go back and realize just how influential that was, you know? And, like, just how much of an impact that stuff had. And they caught ideas with this stuff. And actually, the ideas, like, one of the things that's interesting about Mad and those parodies it's how much they shaped, I think, movie-making later. Sure. Um, you know, because they, they would take scenes and compress them and, and, and chop them in ways that a movie-maker in the 70s never would. But they became really standard issue in the, in the 80s, you know? And I don't think that magazine parody, like, made that style. Like, it, it got kids hooked on this, like, really sliced and diced from the mountain. Sure, sure. Um, so... You know, as, as we're talking just about, you know, kind of these things that, that have influenced you. Actually, before I move on, I'm curious with the Choose Your Own Adventure thing. Netflix has actually just launched uh, their first Choose Your Own Adventure movie. What do you, how do you feel about that, like, coming back into popularity? I, wait, I didn't even know about this. What is it now? They're doing a Choose Your Adventure series. This yeah. is what I said, but this I learned is, this today. <laughs> they, it's a stop motion movie. I just, I, it came up kind of on my, like, newly discovered, but you can actually choose your own adventure as you're watching. You know, to me, it's just like, what's the point? <laughs> um, like, a video game does that better. Right, and in fact, when I was interviewing a lot of these Choose Your Own Adventure guys, they were like, well, we would never, you know, this is a dumb idea to do it again because video games do what we did, and they do it better. Sure. Um, like, they navigate that so much better. So, I, you know, I really, this is weird for me to say, just because I, I wrote a book set in the 80s that's very much about the 80s, and I love the stuff from when I grew up, like, Choose Your Adventure, but I really am tired of sort of 80s nostalgia. I find it really toxic sure. and kind of poisonous. Right. So I'm like, I'm like my own worst enemy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in talking about the things that, that have influenced you, um, you're also one of the, the uh, founding members of the New York Asian Film Festival. How did that come about, and what were some of those films that, that really, you know, influenced you growing up? Well, that was, you know, it's funny. There was a place called the Music Palace, which was this crumbling old movie theater, single screen at the balcony. It was, it was literally the last Chinatown movie theater in America in the 50s and 60s. There were, there were dozens and dozens. There was a whole Chinese theater circuit across the country and a Japanese one. Um, and, and it sort of all went away. And the Music Palace was on the last one, fell on the Bowery. And when I was at NYU in university, I did double features for six bucks. And... So it was, it was really cheap. And I went and um, was blown away. I mean, the first double feature I saw there 
was um, a movie called Always Be the Winner, which was which was fine, and it was followed by a movie called Love on Delivery, which was an early Stephen Chow movie, which just was absolutely gobsmacked. It made no sense whatsoever. <laughs> it was incredibly funny. Um, and I was kind of like, I want more of this. And so, I, you know, and I, I grew to love these things. And my wife and I, um, when we graduated from NYU, we really didn't know uh, what we were going to do. Uh, I think like most people do when they graduate. And um, we bumped into a friend of ours who was walking his dog. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, he's, he's uh, Chinese-American. He was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to move to Hong Kong. My sister's over there. It's really easy to get a job. And so my wife and I were like, well, that sounds cool. We, we love the movies. Let's go do that. <laughs> and um, so we lived over there for about a year and a half, which was great. He never made it. Um, but it was great. And um, when I came back, he sort of loved these movies still. And that sort of gradually parlayed its way. You know, when the music house uh, went up for sale, uh, I've got a couple of the guys who uh, went to see movies there. And I always bristled when I saw a white guy in the audience. I'm like, Jesus Christ, get out of my music palace. Like, <laughs> um, like, you know, I'm sure they were looking at me and thinking the exact same thing. Um, but, it, but a couple of these guys were like, well, let's see if we can save the building. And it was a terrible idea. I mean, we were trying to like raise some money to save it. I mean, we were like kids in a bad Disney movie. Um, and people treated us like idiots because I'm, I'm sure we seem like idiots. And so then, like, there were five of us, and we each, none of us had any film festival experience, and we were like, well, no one's going to show the movies we love anymore. They're going to show Zhang Mo, they're going to show Wong Kar Wai. That art stuff has no problem, but Stephen Chow, John Wu, Jackie Chan, all this stuff that's, like, fun, right. it's going to be gone. Right. And so we all just each threw in a thousand bucks and just sort of learned by doing. And, you know, 17 years later, we're up at Lincoln Center and, you know, it looks all fancy. And the thing that really changed my life with Hong Kong movies was that, well, two things. One is that it was the effect you have on people that was the most important thing. Like a Stephen Chow movie or something, they really didn't worry. I mean, there's a moment in like uh, uh, Choi Hart's Once Upon a Time in China, which is set like at the turn of the century, where, you know, there's this big fight scene and this priest is very clearly wearing Timberland boots. <laughs> um, but it's like you're immersed in the energy and the movement and the speed of the movie and you're immersed in this emotional connection with it and, you, and realism can really go fuck itself right. you know like you just don't care yeah kind of like theater um, and someone who yeah it's like someone who does care is looking at the wrong thing sure. um, and then there was another thing with it that was really interesting which was Troy Hart's influence which was he really made all these historical movies and you really you know when you think of an historical movie um, in the US you think of these like golden shafts of Spielbergian sunlight with dust most in it. And, you know, there's a really rousing Jerry Goldsmith score. <laughs> and someone stands up and says, 500 years ago, <laughs> my people came to this land. And it, it's just, so it's like watching a wax exhibit in a museum. And Choi Hart movies were fast and loose and energetic. And they treated history as just another place, just another planet. Right. Um, and, and it felt like science fiction. And But he did a lot of research. I mean, he did a lot of intense research on this stuff, but he'd find the things that distanced you and made you close to it at the same time. So he made this movie, The Lovers, which is set in, I think, the 16th century, but it was a time when everyone wore makeup, like men wore makeup. Everyone, everyone who was rich was incredibly vain. So there was a whole cosmetics industry for men. And so you have this thing that's very alienating because you've got all these men wearing rouge and blush and eyeshadow and lipstick, but 
you also get it. It's just like vanity. It's like early plastic surgery. Sure, you know what I mean? Sure. It's men giving hair plugs, basically. So, and that's, you know, when I write a lot of books that are set in the past, and I think one of the reasons is I really learned that that's a distancing effect that's so useful um, from Toy Heart. Anyways, that was a really long no, answer. No, that's no, a simple question. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, but just to kind of talk a little bit more about, you know, the things that interest you and, and you know, especially in the context of journalism. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of your uh, your great Stephen King reread. I keep up with it. I believe your, oh, your you. most recent one was Lizzie's Story, correct? Is that the most? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, the most recent one was just after midnight, uh, I think. Just after correct, sunset. just after sunset. Right, right. Well, uh, what made you take on such a seemingly daunting task? Just a labor of love or just something you wanted to say about it? Or I guess we're just curious about that. Yeah, you know, I don't even know why I had those rocks in my head anymore. <laughs> because it started like a couple of years ago. And I think I just wanted to do something with Tor, and I've been doing some writing for them. And um, I was like, oh, hey, why don't I do this? This will be fun. <laughs> And it really, it's weird. It really sort of changed my life. Like, it's, um, going back and reading these books has been so, I mean, it was really just something I took on lightly. And it's been so huge. I mean, um, I, when I started the first one, I hadn't written a novel. I, you know, I had a book that was in edits. And, um, and, and now I've got, you know, a couple of novels out. I've got another book coming out. I've got a contract for more. So it's really been this period of my life when I've sort of become a full-time fiction writer, right. and um, which has been really nice. And, like, when I think that whenever you sort of give yourself to a project um, really unconditionally, which I had to do with this one, because, man, those books are freaking long. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, but it's like, you start finding all these, it's like writing a novel too. You start finding all these weird synchronicities that pop up. Like I was having all this problems with a contract and then I was hitting some books where King was having all these problems with the contract. <laughs> and, you know, I was doing a book where I was really like just lost in it. And I was reading, I was at that point doing the stand the book. He got really lost right. in it. So it was like, you know, he was like my spirit animal. <laughs> guiding you <laughs> through guiding your, me yeah. through this. <laughs> exactly. Um, but then the other thing about it, too, is it was so much fun to go back and reread this stuff. I mean, books I loved as a kid, like Hale and Block, mm-hmm. I was sort of cold to as an adult. And books I really had no time for as a kid, like the Tommyknockers or Cujo, I really found a lot of value in. And not as, like, totally successful books, it's really fascinating books. So it, it was really... That project has done so much for for me, just like as a human being. Okay, awesome. Well, yeah, you've uh, you've really you've like yeah, obviously challenged yourself as an author. You moved from journalism to fiction novels, and now into nonfiction novels. Um, is that mostly just has that been mostly organic, just kind of following what you want to do as you've done it, or has that been more specifically to challenge yourself and like what you do? No, that's really, really like whatever the opportunities are. I mean, you know, it's like. I, I, there's so much other stuff I do that just never like comes to fruition or fails miserably. <laughs> um, so it's like, you know, and it's and the only way I've realized I can survive is to keep doing so many projects mm-hmm. that there's always something that's about to hopefully come to fruition. Um, you know, I just, I just co-wrote this movie Mohawk that premiered up at Fantasia with this guy, Ted Gagan. Oh, we know Ted. And that, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, so, and that was, a totally different movie that I got to by writing a completely different movie. So it's just like, you know, this stuff just sort of comes up when it comes up, right. you know? Um, 
so there's no there's no plan. Okay. Um, well, there, there, I want to I want to talk a little bit more actually about Mohawk uh, in shortly, um, just because we're big fans of Ted's here on the show, and we've we've had Ted on before, and I just thought that that process was really interesting. But before we jump into that, just to kind of talk a little bit about you know you kind of uh, jumping around to different things. How did the graphic novel cookbook come about? Because that's just such a wild idea <laughs> and just such a fun form to oh. play with. Well, okay, so my wife is the chef at Third Candy, and she's the owner and everything. And she was getting all these offers to do a cookbook, and, you know, she wanted to do it with me because, like, you know, I, she didn't have time to write a whole book, and I write and all this. And, um, but I, I thought it was a stupid idea, and, and, I, and, and she sort of felt the same way. And so but at the same time, it's hard to walk away from people who want to give you money. <laughs> Definitely. And so we were actually having a fight in the middle of the street one day. And I was like, I think it was me who said it, but maybe her. I was like, yeah, this is so stupid. Why do another freaking cookbook? That's just the dumbest thing on earth. I mean, we may as well just do like a stupid comic book cookbook or something. <laughs> and both of us are like, oh, crap. That's what we need to do. Sure. And so, yeah, that, that's totally how it came about. Awesome. Um, well, yeah, so what, is, what has it been like, I guess, with that, like, springing off what I mentioned earlier, like, the transition from, uh, like, different different forms of writing. So transition, what made you decide to go from short stories to the, again, daunting task of writing novels? Uh, again, was that kind of organic, or? Well, you know, I like writing long more than I like writing short. I mean, as you can probably tell, I, I talk a lot. <laughs> um, so going on longer is so much more fun for me than short. Um, so going from short stories to novels was like such a freaking relief. It was like, oh, thank God. Um, <laughs> it's finally time. I, you know, I, yeah. And it's like, also, I feel like, you know, I really like characters in books. Sure. Like, um, but I feel like for me, the best way to like, um, feel close to the characters, you spend a lot of time with them and see them in different situations. And that's just so hard for me to do in a short story. Um, okay. but you know, but also everything sort of has its own shape. Like, I, I worked for this um, parapsychological research organization for, for many years, um, the American Society for Psychical Research, and um, I mostly just answered the phones there, but they had this great library and archive, and I you know, was doing reading all this historical material because I had a lot of free time about spiritualism and all this, and um, I really wanted to do something with it because I thought it was this great, untold, sort of true nonfiction history story. And I tried it as a book, and I tried it as a um, graphic novel, and I, you know, just got rejected and rejected. And I finally have started doing it as just I get up on stage and I talk. It's, it's me and a microphone, and that's it. And it's like an hour and 15 or 20 minutes, and it works. Sure. And it's like sometimes you just, the, the material just has to find the form that's right. And I talked to someone, you know, at one point about doing this more as a show with, like, lighting effects and all this. And it was bogus. It was just like, this is a story that's just one person standing in the dark talking to you. (laughs) And that's what it needs to be. And so everything sort of finds its form. Uh, You just have to keep poking at it. Okay. So to kind of, you know, talk about finding form and, 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 you know, as we move into your first novel, um, what was the genesis of Horror Store? And kind of how did that, you know, come about? I mean, because it takes such a a mundane place and kind of, you know, turns it on its head. How How did that kind of come about for you? Well, so I had written a totally different book called McMansions of the Dam. It was a haunted house book. Um, and, and it was basically, it was basically a haunted house book because I find haunted house books so depressing. Sure. They're like really anti-human. They're like 
you invest all your money in this property, and then you got a you screwed up. Yeah. You've got a haunted house, and all you can do is run away. Sure. Like, <laughs> it's, it's terrible. You, you know, and so I, I really wanted to do something with someone who just refused to. He decided ignoring the ghosts was the best way to react to them. <laughs> um, so I had this book, and um, I, I sent it out to a couple of people, and someone, a, a clerk, recommended uh, that I knew had interviewed for a job there and mentioned my name to Jason Rakulik, who's my editor now. I said, oh, you should read this manuscript you have. So he asked for it and read it. And he was like, yeah, I don't like this manuscript at all. But I really like your writing style, and like I've always wanted to do something like with a haunted house, but more modern. And, and so we started talking about what we could do and all this. And, and one of us, and I think it was him, but it made me was like, what about Nicaea? And then he really ran with that and was like, oh, my God, it's going to have to look like an Ikea catalog and all that. <laughs> and so from a like, marketing point of view, it was like, great. And so I was like, okay, okay, Ikea, Ikea. And, and wound up, I wound up spending a lot of time in Ikeas. Um, and, like, and, and so that's sort of where that came out of. Um, and, and it's interesting. That book uh, really changed a lot while I was writing it um, because it was really, really hard for me after working at the ASPR for so long dealing with, like, real ghosts, and by real ghosts, I mean, like, real experiences sure. people have where they feel like they've seen a ghost, to dealing with, like, ghosts that want to kill you, because they're just, it's just not real. Um, and so, like, I find real ghosts kind of fascinating, but, like, fake ghosts, I'm like, eh. So it was really hard for me to wrap my head around sure. that. It took a, took a while. Um, well, I'm... There's some, there's some early, not very dramatic manuscripts for that book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the reception for that book, I mean, has been, has you know, continued to be very, like, tremendous. Um, what was that like for you? Was there was there validation in that? And, you know, I know that there's been talks of a film adaptation, which I think you're working on the screenplay for. I mean, was that immediate, or, you know, how did that come about? Uh, the, the movie thing, well, the, the validation thing, well, kind of yes and no. I mean, I, I'll never feel validated enough. There's not <laughs> enough love in the world. I want it all. An artist curse. There's a hole in the... <laughs> There's a hole that can't be filled. Um, but uh, but that doesn't sound good. Um, um, we'll edit that out. <laughs> but it's also weird, too, with books, because like by the time Horror Store came out, I was writing another book, and it was sort of almost like a year in my rearview mirror just because publishing moved so slowly. Sure. So like, Horror Store really feels like, like, when I hear about it now, I feel like it's like my kid I sent off to college, and I'm like, oh, I'm so glad it's doing well. I'm glad it's... Not on drugs. Um, but the TV thing was great. I mean, it was a sale, and the sale did a lot. I mean, you know, the best thing about selling a book uh, you've written to a movie or a TV producer is that suddenly everyone's aware of it, like, in a way they weren't before. Sure. Like, they can associate famous names with it, and that's great. And it does a lot for sales. And, you know, it's like the thing that goes for my mom being like, oh, well, you wrote a cute little book. And being like, oh. <laughs> Um, so, uh, but you know, it's also Hollywood's kind of frustrating things take forever and go on and on and on. So I've never been in the running to write the, the adaptation of horror store just cause I couldn't figure out how to turn it into a series, okay. which is what they want to do. Sure. So I haven't heard from them in a while. And I think we're all supposed to talk in October, um, about what's going on. I know they're shopping it around, but I wish I had something more dramatic to say. <laughs> right. Um, um, well then kind of moving into my best friend's exorcism, which was actually, um, I mean, besides some of your articles and things like that, was my first exposure to to your novel work. Um, I 100% adored this novel. I just thought, I mean, it's, it, it's just 
really fun and scary and just... I mean, it's everything I've ever loved about the genre. Um, not just horror genre, but, you know, the, the coming-of-age genre. Um, you said that the title popped into your head pretty randomly. How much of the idea was attached to that? Zero. Okay. I mean, it really was a title. And based on the title and sort of... And I, and I had the rough pitch, which was, you know, two girls probably around 10th grade in South Carolina um, in the 80s. Uh, basically, um, actually, it wasn't set in the 80s originally. I'm sorry. Two girls in South Carolina. One of them becomes convinced that the other one's possessed by Satan. Um, and man, there was some, you know, that book took forever to get where it was sure. going. And I wound up setting it in the 80s because I was like, well, you know, if you're going to have an exorcism, you've got to have faith. But I didn't want to do Christianity because it's like, A, that's kind of limiting, and B, like, I don't think people are as religious as they were in the past. Right. And I was like, well, what is it people would have faith in besides? I was like, ah, friends. Well, when's friendships most intense, which is high school? And I felt like I need to make it authentic. It had to be my high school, so I'd know the details. Right. I just don't know what goes on in high schools <laughs> now. Um, so it's set in the 80s. But, like, man, I had a whole draft of this book. It's like, like about 80,000 words, and I gave it to my editor, and I gave it to my wife to read, and my wife was just like, dude, this is some hot garbage. Oh, this damn. terrible. <laughs> um, and, you know, and after I finished having my little temper tantrum, <laughs> she's totally right. Sure. Like, you know, I was basically ripping off other people's ideas about what high school was like and the 80s were like. Like, and so I spent, like, a couple of weeks, I think it was, like, almost three weeks, reading all my old letters and, like, looking through my old annuals and pictures and stuff. And, like, my wife let me look through all her old stuff, and I was reading my old journals and things. And um, and I realized, like, it was just during that, I had this actual memory suddenly, like, out of nowhere of what it had actually felt like to be in high school back then. Sure. And, and that sort of led to another and another and another. And, you know... I, I I was such a better person in high school. Like, so easy to laugh at high school and who we were when we were younger. But like, dude, like we took it on the chin yeah, every day. Absolutely. Like we we put our hearts, yeah, and like you put your heart on your sleeve and just get your ass handed <laughs> to you. And every day is so terrifying because someone is literally telling you you're about to make a decision that could ruin the rest of your life. And it's just, you know, it was just. And so once it's there, and then it was just a matter of like giving. I had to sort of give myself permission to to write it. Like, everything in that book is something that happened to me in one form or another. Oh, wow. Every person is someone I knew. And oftentimes, you know, the person they are in the book is, is that they're based on. It's so far back, no one would ever recognize sure. themselves. But, like, there's a couple of people I'm surprised I haven't gotten angry <laughs> phone calls from. Um, so one of the interesting things about that, I mean, you, you take, you know, the – perspective through i mean through the book of these you know young female characters was that always i mean you, you know you talked that it was these two girls i mean did you ever toy with the idea because there was so much personal experience to make the character male no and in fact it was always it was always abby and gretchen right, right from the beginning um and and i always knew who they were i mean it was two friends of mine i had in high school and I mean, they, they would never recognize themselves in a million years. And they're very different in the book from who they are. I mean, they really moved away. But that was the seed of those people with them. And it just, I was just terrible at writing them in the beginning. Sure, sure. <laughs> just, so, yeah. Uh, no, but it, weirdly enough, no. Um, yeah. So, to, I mean, in the last few years, probably I would say almost a decade now, 
we've had a, a, a glut of, of possession and, you know, uh, especially with, with really, you know, strong religious overtones. Um, you've really managed to create something special and a fresh take on it. Um, did you have any, like, cardinal rules of, like, I'm not going to perpetrate, you know, this stereotype or, you know, this thing that's been done to death as you, as you went oh, into Oh, yeah, writing? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the book is basically, you know, there's a scene in The Exorcist where um, it's after it's all over and they're saying goodbye to, I can't remember, I think they're saying goodbye to the priest who survived, mm-hmm. uh, and... And it's like Barbara Hershey and Linda Blair, and they're like, bye. And it's just like a little happy scene of the mom and daughter on the front of their house. And I'm like, well, this is awkward. <laughs> like, how is breakfast going to be the next morning? Like, you know what I mean? Like, and it's like, wait, it's fun. God won. We're all good. I'm like, she, she just rubbed her mother's face and her bloody vagina. Like, you know, and murdered a dude. Like, like, like how how is this going to result? And I found that so much more interesting, you know? The thing with exorcism stories is they're not about the demoniac, the, the possessed person. Exorcism stories are always about the priest or the exorcist face being tested. Right. And so they come down to just some old dudes with a young girl tied to a bed screaming at her. And, like, like it doesn't matter that Regan O'Neill, I think it's Regan O'Neill, but Regan in the book, it doesn't matter what she likes or doesn't like or what she is or what she cares about or what matters to her. She's just a vessel. Right. Like, and it's, and I was like, you know, that's kind of crappy. Like, <laughs> there, there is an actual human being here. And I read a lot about actual exorcism. Um, and there's a, there's a thing in, in Protestantism, uh, the Protestant religion is called deliverance, uh, which is the same kind of thing. Um, and, the people who are in it for the flash, they get called pyromaniacs because they like the fireworks. Sure. <laughs> they don't care about the demoniac. They don't care about the possessed person. And, and those are often the cases where someone winds up dead. And there's another branch of it where people, like, they do really care. And it's almost like it's therapy and helping people work through their problems, like by, by puking and having a demon come out of them. And, and to me, there's something really human about that, you know? I have something terrible in my life. I'm not going to go to a therapist because that's, you know, for liberals or whatever. And, but I will go to church and I will, you know, personify this problem as a demon of addiction or pornography or adultery. And then I will have this physical cleansing and, like, sort of public humiliation and get rid of it. Like, I mean, that's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're... Matt and I both grew, grew up, grow, you know, have grown up in the South. So yeah. there's definitely a lot of, okay. a lot about that that rings true. <laughs> right. Um, <clears throat> Um, you mentioned earlier the uh, the cover of Horror House and how it was designed to look like an IKEA cover and uh, my best friend's exorcism. I think the the hardback looked like a, a yearbook. A yearbook, yeah. And the new one, uh, which I'm a yeah. huge fan of, looks like an old uh, video store VHS cover. And uh, what some people may not realize is there's like an interactive way to experience the book. There's a Spotify playlist, I believe. Um, and I'm just curious, like how much input you had on those things, like how involved you were. <clears throat> Oh, more, more than, uh, as much as I want to be. One of the nice things about working with Quirk, even though they're a really small publisher, is they'll, go, they'll give you some back and forth. Yeah. Um, like when we did the cookbook, my wife and I, that was like with, a, with an imprint of Random House. And um, the fact that we uh, weren't thrilled about the covers they were giving to us yeah. um, was just like, it was basically like we just crawled on the conference room table and taking a shit. <laughs> like, they were so, 
completely appalled and repulsed that the authors would have anything to say about the design of their really? book. Really? And so the nice thing was, oh yeah. And so the nice thing about Quirk is that I because they're small enough, we'll have a back and forth about it. Like horror store, Lander knew he wanted to look like an IKEA catalog, but then like. I was like, well, what if we had a, like a different piece of furniture at the front of each chapter? And then the designer was like, well, what if the furniture had a little catalog copy for it? And I was like, well, that'd be cool. And I was like, well, what if the catalog copy got dark? So the furniture would turn into torture. <laughs> so we had this real back and forth where we really fed off of each other. Right. And that's how it's been for all these. And it's been really, really nice. Like, I really, I, it's, it's great. Yeah. I mean, that horror, sc- I mean, that uh, Best Friends Exorcism paperback cover we are actually the hardback cover too. I mean, they we went through seventy something designs wow. uh, for the hardback cover. Yeah, and um, and it's but it's so much fun to do this stuff. And I feel like if you want people to get off their butts and actually buy a book, it's nice to give them a little something extra. Sure. Like there's actually, if you read the yearbook inscriptions on the inside of the backs and front covers of Destin's Exorcism on the hardcover, there's actually a little like secret coda to the Abby and Gretchen story oh, wow. in one of them. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. Max the dog gets a little special uh, moment. <laughs> um, and so, like, like it's, it's really fun to do this stuff, you know? And it's like, and they, they're really open to going back and forth, which is nice. Okay. For the, just to kind of speak to my own experience with it, I mean, I bought my best friend's exorcism from seeing the cover alone. Like, I was just like, well, this is a, a brilliant take on it, and it was just... Uh, so much fun and i i just bought a version of the paperback because i was like well this is you know i mean it's just matt and i were both video store kids you know so it just really harkens back to to everything that we loved growing up so yeah yeah i had not seen the uh i had not seen the vhs cover until today and mike showed it to me before this interview action i was just like oh that's that's fucking perfect like that's the best thing oh it's so great no and that that cover is 100 percent the art director at quirk is a guy named doogie horner and um, he's a horror movie guy, and, like, that was totally his idea. And he found this Australian artist <laughs> after searching through a lot of people, a guy named Hugh Fleming, who pulled that off with, like, no time to spare. Like, that was such a last-minute decision mm-hmm. to do that cover. And, like, we didn't have time to make... We had time to make, like, one round of revisions off the sketch. I mean, it was, like... And it just came out looking so yeah, great. That's awesome. Um, so that's, that's really incredible. I mean, obviously both covers are really great. One of the things we talked about a little earlier that I kind of wanted to touch on again is, uh, film writing. I know you said you wanted to be a director as a kid and I don't know, where did, where did, you know, the, the proposition for Mohawk come from and, and, you know, had you and Ted known each other for a while and, and how did that kind of come about? Yeah. Yeah. Ted and I have known each other for a really long time. We've got this friend named Mark Walkow who, um, New York, and he has sort of a mini screening room in his house, and basically a bunch of people go over there once a month or every other month, and just watch, like, the, the worst sleaziest movies imaginable. <laughs> and so, Ted's been coming to that for a really long time, which is how I know him, and we've become friends over the years, and uh, so, we were, he was, had finished his first movie, uh, We're Still Here, yeah. and that was out and doing really well, and he was going to do a second one, and he was sort of a little stumped. Like, he had some ideas he was fooling around with, one of which was Mohawk. And um, and so I was. I took the opportunity of being friends with you. Like, look, because actually at the time, I was working on a, on a script, because I just do that, even though I don't have, like, you know, I didn't have anywhere to sell it, really. Um, but I was working on a script that was sort of in the vein of what he was thinking of, which was he wanted to do a sort of heavy metal, satanic thing. And I was like, dude, please, let me write this for you. 
and I I had a draft of the script ready, and uh, I had to sort of do some gender switching and make some changes. And he really liked it. We worked on it together and, and got it into shape. And sent it to the producer, uh, Travis Stevens, who really liked it. And it went off to Dark Sky, the money people, and they really liked it. And so there's a big announcement and variety in the trade. There, you know, Travis Stevens, Ted Dagan, Brady Hendricks, Dark Sky, this movie called Satanic Panic. Um, and then literally, gosh, a week later, we get this call from Dark Sky that's like, yeah, we have this opportunity to do an outdoor period film in Saskatchewan because of the tax break situation and another movie we got. And, Ted, you pitched us this Mohawk idea. Let's do that. And we're going to start <laughs> shooting in, in uh, three months. And um, so at that point, Ted was like, uh, help. Because really, it really was a four-sentence pitch he gave them. Um, and so I... Weirdly enough, it's set during the War of 1812, and that happens to be a war I'm really obsessed with. So I was like, you've come to the right place. <laughs> and um, so he and I, for six weeks, sat in my office, which is this tiny little room um, with this filthy couch in it. And we basically wrote Mohawk together. And then, like, this movie was in front of cameras. Like, that took us six weeks, and it was like... Eight weeks later, the movie was rolling. I mean, it was an insanely fast process. And it moved from Saskatchewan all over the place and finally landed in upstate New York because of, like, tax break stuff. Um, And, you know, I still haven't seen the final cut. Like, I missed it at Fantasia, and I've seen a rough cut that they've done the new score and all this stuff. So, yeah, I haven't seen the finished thing, but everyone seems really happy with it. And it's it's a tough movie because it's not horror-ish, you know, it is horror, but it's not, it's, you know, and so I think it's been, it's tough, and the one thing I'm I'm really, really proud of is that, you know, it's incredibly, um, well, it's hard not, it's hard to be anti-Mohawk, but it's like, we were really worried that we're writing a movie with Native American protagonists, and, um, and, and, you know, we were going to get so much stuff wrong, and we gave it to uh, Conopio Horn, and she was thinking of being the lead in this. And um, that was sort of our first moment to be like, okay, here's someone who actually is Mohawk to read this thing. We're going to get our butts handed to us. And she called Ted the next day and was like, okay, so first, before I read your script, I Googled you and this other Grady guy, <laughs> and I did an image search on you two, and you all are the whitest people <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. Um, and, she, and then she was like, and then she's like, and the movie's fucking great, and if you don't cast me in it, I'm going to come murder you. <laughs> and and there, were some, there were some things with names and a few cultural things he'd gotten wrong, but it was such a relief to have gotten it right. right. And it's like such a cool part of history. So anyway. That's yeah, really so fantastic. Um, one of the things I was curious about, you know, if we're talking a little bit about film writing. I, for for my money, I think a, one of my personal dream projects would be to either write or direct an adaptation of my best friend's exorcism. Would it have? Do you have any interest in that, or has there been any any talk about that? Yeah, I, yeah. There's been a ton, and um, I know there's a deal that I'm not allowed to talk sure. about. Um, and but it, but I got to say, it's been really really frustrating because from my point of view, this is like oh, practically a movie already. Right, absolutely, um, yeah. In, but in Hollywood, this has nothing anyone wants from a horror movie because the, the conventional wisdom in L.A. is that, and not to bag on L.A., there's very smart film people out there, but the conventional wisdom is horror movies are the main audience for that is going to be male 
between 18 and 25, and that's sort of the big key demographic you've got to hit. And this is a movie with two female leads set in a time period before most 25-year-olds are even born. Sure. And it has zero franchise potential. Like, you can't have a sequel. You know, maybe even Best Year Friends exorcism. <laughs> like, right. it, it, it doesn't... And so that was really eye-opening to realize that, like, because we all went into it, like, going, whoa, this will be a home run. And we realized it was a really tough time. Right. It's like uh, the, the enough. things that you thought mattered, it's like they don't give a shit about. <clears throat> Yeah, exactly. And like, and you know, and it's also like once you get past the money people who are worrying about the marketability, then you get to directors and writers who are excited right. about it because they see the story. But like, but you do have to worry about the other stuff. I mean, it's it's important, you sure, know. Sure. Um, well, kind of bringing us, you know, to your most recent project and something that I'm incredibly excited about because it's something I grew up with, uh, Paperbacks from Hell. What was kind of the genesis of that project? Well, you know, like I said earlier, like I read a lot of these, or a fair amount of these mass market paperback books, like just almost randomly from like the paperback swap shop when I grew up. But um, it wasn't really until I would say 2010, I was at a convention and I pulled a paperback and I sort of read weird paperbacks because I always thought it's so weird to me that with movies, because I'm sort of a movie guy at heart, like with movies, there's this real tradition and, and of people going out into the wilderness and being like, dude, I found this thing that was only ever on VHS. It was shot by this crazy person in Florida. <laughs> and it's about, you know, like, you know, like rapist jellyfish. Sure. But, you know, and everyone's like, oh, I want to see that. And like, there's this real idea of going out in the wild and bringing back some obscure movies. Right. And with books, that doesn't seem to happen as much. It does in very sort of small collector circles, but it doesn't book fandom is really sort of sedate compared to movie fandom in a lot of ways. Right. Um, and I think it's just because books take a lot longer to read and sort of more of a personal experience. But So I was reading just random paperbacks to sort of see what was good, what was I finding cool stuff out there. And then I stumbled across this book at ReaderCon in 2010 called The Little People, which has a cover of Nazi leprechauns with gold <laughs> um, pouring out of this Irish castle while this man and woman cower in terror, which is totally understandable. Yes. Um, and it was, the beginning was a little boring, the end was a little boring, but the middle was just batshit genius. Sure. And like... And, and that sort of thing, and even though that was a little before the wave of the 70s, that was like late 60s, I just started to read more and more of this stuff and write about it for tour and, and you know, and just really get into it because, and, it, and this history started to appear. Like, you know, I hadn't seen anyone really writing about a lot about how horror really didn't exist before 1967 when Rosemary's Baby, the book, came out. Like, there was no horror genre in literature. Um, you know, there was suspense, there were thrillers. But, but there wasn't a horror. And then there was Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist in 71 and this other book called uh, The Other by Thomas Tran. So it was the first three books to sort of hit the bestseller list since 1940 that were horror. And that launched this whole wave of paperback originals and paperback horror books that really ruled the world until the early 90s when Silence of the Lambs came along and some of these serial killers were the next big thing and horror, which had sort of blooded the market, died out. And then thrillers with serial killers came along. Right. Um, and so I was writing, you know, and that was sort of becoming apparent to me. And then my editor, Jason, he just called me one day. It's like, you know, this is a weird idea, but uh, have you ever thought about maybe taking those four columns? Because it's so much fun and like maybe turning in the book. 
And to me, it was like someone had been like, hey, have you ever thought about maybe going on a like five day orgy full of cocaine and like, you know, on a dirigible? I was like, yeah. Um, and it was hard. It was tough because, uh, and I worked with a guy named Will Erickson who runs a blog called uh, Too Much Horror Fiction, who sort of, he was in this territory before anyone else. And he and I really talked a lot. I and mean, he's president of the book and stuff, but we talked a lot about how to do a book like this because how do you give shape to something like sure. this? Um, and so what we sort of realized is that if you, you could roughly follow chronologically, because there would be a big book, The Exorcist or Rosemary Theity, and then there'd be a bunch of imitators. So then there's The Omen, and after The Omen, there's all these evil child books, because The Omen novelizations sure. were huge, huge successes, but even, even more so than the movie almost. Um, I wonder if- like there's five, there's five Omen novelizations and there's only three wow. movies. Wow, right, right. Uh, yeah, and like, and like the, the fourth one like opens with a scene of like the grandson of Satan being born from a woman's butt. I mean, it's really <laughs> awkward stuff. Wow, how have um, I not read this? <laughs> um, what, what are the, what um, are the things I was curious about? You know, in in you know these different knockoffs and things, and just the time period that these were really heightened. Uh, was the satanic panic as a you know as a cultural thing a big part of these? paperbacks becoming a big deal too because you had things like michelle remembers and and things like that yeah i mean did do you think that that contributed to the to the popularity of these books oh absolutely i mean well the popularity of some of them like because you also had like you know you had medical thrillers you had animal attack books you had like uh burnt offerings and the amityville horror which sparked the haunted house wave but yeah definitely i mean there was still people writing about that really corny satanic panic stuff like the black robes and the chanting and heavy metal music turning children into like murderous serial masturbators. Um, <laughs> Only when you play it backwards. You still had that. You still had that stuff all the way into the eighties. Like that kind of corny. Like you feel like it went out in the seventies, kind of BS with the satanic panic. Like that. That kept going. Right. Um, and so I do definitely feel like, and you know, a lot of these books were targeted for um, drug stores and bus stations and real, like you know. They weren't looking for an elite audience. They were looking for an audience of sort of like um, working class, normal, middle class American people. And those were people who were watching Geraldo's, you know, <laughs> exposing Satan's underground special sure. and who were following like the Judas Priest trial and thinking, well, maybe, you know, and also all the like satanic. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, all the sort of satanic panic, um, you know, big Martin preschool, Tom molesting stuff, which. I, that's what I grew up sort of like surrounded right. by. And I really remember, I mean, what, reading that stuff in the paper every day where, you know, there were people in court giving testimony about how their child was flushed down a toilet into an underground temple where Chuck Norris and Al Gore would like race them. <laughs> and you're like, and, 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 <laughs> and I remember even as a kid being like, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> 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 but also feeling really, really scared because everyone else was acting like it did. Right. Like these people who had been arrested, they had lawyers, they were at it before a judge. Yeah. They were going to prison, some of them. The papers were reporting it like it was real. And I really remember like my friends and I, because we were all probably in like ninth, tenth, eleventh grade when this was going on, being like the world has completely lost its mind. <laughs> like there are no rules. <laughs> like, you know? Um and so, yeah, so I definitely do that satanic panic stuff. And there's another part of it, just if I can, one other thing is, I, I don't know if you know Kayla Denise, but she does the Miskatonic Horror Institute oh, sure. or Institute of Horror Studies. 
like she wrote House of Psychotic Women, and she's been really doing a lot of stuff about children's entertainment and talking about how the 70s was sort of the era of free-range kids. Right. <laughs> and then somehow we got into the 80s when, like, and now when it's like children don't go outside right. unsupervised. And she really blames or, or pinpoints a lot of that on the satanic panic and stuff, and also the child abduction stuff, which is like suddenly, and it was really 79 and 80, your children are in danger. Strangers want your children. Right. They're Satanists. They're, they're, they're Moonies. I mean, I remember she and I were talking recently because we both remember being warned specifically about the Moonies who are going to abduct us. Like the Moonies? <laughs> um, like, like what? Hippies? Like PCP dealers, like these people want to get your kids, sure. and like that changed everything. Yeah, and there was so much of it, like the same kind of stuff later on, like the the like all the urban legends about like how uh, people were handing out uh, tattoos that were actually acid on like playgrounds and all those yeah. really weird things that followed this. <clears throat> oh, completely. And like you know, I remember there was one thing, and I, I put it in my best friend's exorcism. Like we were told if you went out the Citadel Mall, that there were like cult people. We weren't sure what to call. <laughs> But they had a needle, and they would scratch you with it, and it had AIDS blood on it. And it would give you yeah, AIDS. that's per- like, that's perfect. That's that's exactly indicative of that time. <laughs> yeah, and it's just like what. <laughs> and at the same time, you know, I mean, I you know, AIDS was such a panic too. I mean, there was literally a five-year-old kid who was kept out of school because she was HIV positive in Florida, I believe. And the judge ordered that she attend school inside a glass box wow. to protect the other kids from her. Wow. And they built the box. And she died of health complications before they finished with the box. But they literally were going to put a five-year-old in a glass Holy box. Holy shit. Wait, that's insane. That is, that's bananas. Um, so, I mean, you talked a little bit about the decline of these books. Just can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, you know, what it just seems like there was a full stop all of a sudden to these kind of things. I mean, was it just because of, you know, the the idea of these serial killer novels? Did it have to do with other things in pop culture? I mean, what did you find throughout your research? Yeah, well, there was a, there was a bunch of things and like there were a lot of market forces at work like like, you know, um there was there were things like Reagan had cut a lot of uh art funding and library funding so libraries were cutting their budgets. And so suddenly they weren't buying, uh, they weren't ordering horror. You know, they had to cut things they ordered. But also there was a big problem because all the big publishing houses were merging and they were absorbing the small imprints and then starting their own imprints. Like, because they're like, well, if this little company can put out, you know, 40 paperbacks a year, we'll absorb them, keep the name, and we'll put out our 40 paperbacks a year. And the market was just getting glutted. I mean, I remember talking to someone who was telling me that they were in the Barnes and Noble in New York City in the late 80s. And there were so many mass market horror paperbacks that the staff had just started putting them in a shopping cart, like piled up at the end. Like, not even putting them on the shelves, <laughs> just putting them in a shopping cart at the end of an aisle. Wow. Um, and, you know, you had returns. I mean, there were books that were getting 92% returns. Like, so for 90, for out of every 100 cop- copies they were sending out, 92 were coming back to the warehouse oh for God. a refund because no one was buying them. So the market was just totally glutted. Um, and on top of that, you had a real problem. I mean, I hate to say this because at the time it made sense in the context of the culture, but Splatterpunk was a huge problem. Sure. Splatterpunk came along with this reaction to like the moral majority, like, screw you guys, we are dangerous. But unfortunately, it wound up being a lot of books about, like, you know, women getting raped with knives and, like, you right. know, having their eyelids cut off. And of course, it became really corny and rapey. And 
that sort of sparked this big war boom at the end of the 80s where people just kept trying to top each other. And they were just right. I mean, you had Gene Cabello's found the Dell Abyss line, which was this imprint of horror that did some really great stuff. But she founded it specifically not to publish books about women getting raped and murdered. <laughs> like, like and, and so then, you know, when Silence of the Lambs won, like, the Stoker and the World Fantasy Award, I think in uh, 88, you know, everyone started adding in serial killers. And by the time Silence of the Lambs won all the Oscars in 91, he was like, you know, I, I talked to one author who said that, like, he actually went through a vampire manuscript and just took out the word vampire and put in serial killer. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, everyone wanted serial killers all the time. And because horror was bottoming out and no one was buying it, people were just relabeling horror novels as thrillers. Sure. Like, sometimes in mid-production. Um, and so, really, you got to a point by, like, 95, where the imprints were closing, the lines were getting shut down, the magazines were going out of business, and that stuff was also happening because of market forces, but this didn't help. Sure. Um, and it's interesting, because horror became so toxic. When I would tell people when I was writing horror stories, I'm writing a horror novel. I'd, like, watch steel shutters come down over their <laughs> eyes. And then when I'd say, I'd go, oh, I'm writing a book about a haunted Ikea. They'd be, oh, that sounds like so much fun. Like, Horror just like, got totally irradiated by, you know, this glut and this sort of association with gore. Yeah, it's still a bad word, you know? I mean, it's still a bad word to, yeah. to a lot of people. Um, well, I think the project is, is fascinating. I can't wait to get my hands on the book. Um, when, what is the, the street date for the book? So it comes out on September 19th. Okay. Um, but I've heard rumors that a few bookstores have started leaking copies out. So... Um, Look around, but September 19th when normal people can get it. Awesome. Cool. Well, uh, Grady, thank you so much for your time. Just to finish up, I mean, can you talk about anything that you've got coming up? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm right now uh, busting my butt on my next novel, which is coming out in uh, spring of 2018, and I've got to get this thing wrapped up in the next three weeks. But it's basically about a metal band uh, that never made it, and now they're all sort of adults, and they realize that they accidentally... Uh, sold their souls, but never got much benefit for it back in the day. <laughs> That's awesome. And so they're like, they're all like in their late forties, and they're super pissed off. It's called "We Sold Our Souls," and um, and it's it's wound up a lot darker than I thought it would actually. <laughs> sure. um, is there still uh, interest in the Satanic Panic script? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was just talking to Ted about it, and we're supposed to touch base about it when we get back, uh, when I get back to the city. Um, yeah, I mean, something might happen with that, and then um, there's another script I can't say anything about, but it looks like it's got some people interested in it. It's um, based a little on my time working for the ASPR. So, uh, uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, Grady, thank you so much for your time. You've been so generous, and obviously, you know, we're really excited about anything you have coming up on the horizon. Uh, for people who want to follow you online, where's a good place for them to do that? Uh, GradyHendrix.com. It's got the link to my Twitter and my Facebooker and all that stuff. Awesome. It's just my name, so it's easy to remember. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, everybody check out Paperbacks from Hell. And if you haven't checked out Grady's previously, previous work, you can uh, do that by checking out his website. And, you know, I'm sure you can pick some stuff up on Amazon and things like that. So for Bigger Show, this is Ben. Matt, general audience, Miles. And I have been Mike D. Thank you all so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Goodbye. We're going to need a big show. We're going to need.